The best leaders lead from behind and take the attitude of a servant. This is one of the most obvious areas where Lao Tzu and Jesus are unquestionably on the same page. But what does a leader look like when he's at the back of the line? What does a leader look like when she's taking the role of a servant first? I've shared stories on this show before of times that I've witnessed this. I've shared about the pastor who empowered and trusted his team rather than micromanaging them, or the worship team coordinator at the church who put in countless hours building a strong and gifted team and making sure that things ran smoothly for the practices and for Sunday mornings, and yet most of the time, most people didn't even know that he had a leadership role at all. But sometimes it can be hard to identify examples of servant leadership because at least according to the Dao De Jing, the ideal leader is the one who serves so well that people forget that he or she is even leading them at all. Now, this obviously doesn't have to always be the case. Some people, like the pastor, can't help but be recognized as a leader. It's a right in the title. It's part of their role. But for others, like that worship coordinator, it would be so easy to forget all of his work or not even to recognize it in the first place if I hadn't known him so well and worked alongside him so closely. And so, tonight as I was preparing for this, I did a little bit of searching online and I found an article called The Ten Characteristics of Servant Leadership. And as I read these, I find more and more people coming to my mind that I had also forgotten who had demonstrated these characteristics. Now what's most interesting is that so many of these traits are not the ones that we immediately associate with leadership. And yet most of them, in fact, probably all of them are incredibly Taoist and incredibly Christ-like. And so here they are, they're listening or paying attention to what people have to say. It's the first characteristic of a servant leader. Empathy, working to understand and validate people, their right to feel how they feel. Healing, being committed to their physical and mental well-being. Self-awareness, understanding how your emotions and your behaviors affect the people around you, especially the ones that you are leading. Persuasion, encouraging people to take action rather than demanding that they do something or resorting to your so-called authority to get what you want. Conceptualization, looking beyond the day-to-day realities to see the greater picture and dream big dreams. Foresight, learning from the past and being able to understand possible consequences of actions today. Stewardship, taking responsibility for not only your own actions, but the actions and the performance of your whole team. Not to make yourself feel guilty for others' failures, but to Take seriously your commitment to help everyone succeed. And lastly, the tenth characteristic of a servant leader was called building community, a trait which really needs no further explanation. Now for the Christian, there's no greater example of these traits than Christ himself. In the words of the Tao Te Ching, it is the sage or the wise person, depending on what translation you use. The fact that so many Christians have recognized how Christ-like this wise person or this Taoist master is tells me that Lao Tzu was onto something. 
and many times his words help provide a contemplative spin on cultivating this idea of servant leadership. In other words, if we take the time to stop and to meditate on his words, and if we have ears to hear, then we will undoubtedly find ourselves pointed to Jesus when we read the Tao Te Ching, that ancient book of Chinese wisdom and spirituality that did not draw me away from a Christ-centered faith, but actually helped me hold on to it. Hi, my name's Corey Farr, and this is episode 53 of A Christian Reads the Tao Te Ching. In this series, we're working through the Tao Te Ching from beginning to end, one chapter or two chapters at a time. Uh, There are 81 chapters in this little book, and we talk about all the ways in which I've seen connections and parallels and interaction between this book and my Christian faith, ways that it's encouraged me or um, supplemented, provided different angles of viewing things that I already believe, um, not as a source of theology, but as a source of sort of personal development or spiritual development, we might call it. Um, if you have not listened before, best thing to do is go back to the first episode and check that out. It's quite a bit shorter, but it does give sort of an overview of what is the Tao Te Ching, what are we doing here, and um, kind of uh, what is the, the idea behind this show. You can also head on over to my blog at coryfar.com. Um, it's kind of uh, in a long-term sabbatical right now, but I've written a lot there about different articles of faith and spirituality. And there is a series that follows the podcast episodes for at least the first, I believe it's around 30. I, I say this every episode, I need to check the number, but uh, it does follow the first few dozen episodes and then I kind of stopped uh, doing these posts because time was short, but you can read those to kind of catch up. In today's episode, though, we'll be looking at chapters 66 and 68. And so together, these two, as you might have guessed, work to flesh out a radical approach to uh, servant leadership. And really, it's a different angle on Wu Wei, or this, this Taoist term Wu Wei, which means action without action, or acting without acting. We started looking at it last week. We've actually looked at it many times before. Um, But last week we started sort of a specific train of thought, and these two chapters will continue what we started to talk about last week. And so both of these chapters work together to form a picture of uh, leadership that is non-contending, which is something we brought up a lot in last week's episode, non-contending, non-aggressive or not even defensive leadership, but something that works together. And so chapter 66 is focused on how we interact with the people that we lead. And then chapter 68 focuses on how we confront the interpersonal problems that we face. And that is, again, through a posture of non-contention. And so let's dive right in because, and I do feel like I say this every week, but uh, we do have a lot to cover today. So let's go ahead and hear first chapter 66 from Jeff. Why is the sea the king of a hundred streams? Because it lies below them. Therefore, it is the king of a hundred streams. If the sage would guide the people, he must serve with humility. If he would lead them, he must follow behind. In this way, when the sage rules, the people will not feel oppressed. When he stands before them, they will not be harmed. The whole world will support him and will not tire of him. 
Because he does not compete, he does not meet competition. So chapter 66 focuses on how a leader should interact with the ones that he or she is leading. And as we've seen so many other times in the Tao Te Ching, it starts with a comparison to water. And this time it's focusing on the sea. Now, students in elementary school learn that all water flows downward until it eventually hits sea level. We remember that, at least I remember that famous example of if the drop of water falls on one side or another of the continental divide, um, then it will eventually reach either the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. And in a sense, we could say, and Lao Tzu does say, that the sea rules all the streams of the world because they all flow into it. They all feed it. And yet it does this by keeping itself at the lowest point. And this is fascinating to Lao Tzu, and it's incredibly instructive for us. So the core of this chapter is made up of two principles, and then they're followed by two results that kind of stem from them. And of course, the principles are intimately linked, but they are distinct here. First, true leaders take the attitude of a servant. And then second, true leaders place themselves below or they follow after the ones that they're actually leading. Now, these principles are obviously resonant with Jesus' own teachings on leadership. I don't even think I need to explain that. He said, The greatest among you must be the servant of all, and he himself, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He even acted out these principles many times, most famously in the washing of his disciples' feet before the Last Supper. We are familiar with these. Even, I think, people not indoctrinated in church teachings are familiar with these. Now, different translations will take these two principles differently, and they round them out, as always. So let's go ahead and compare a few different ones. So first, the idea that true leaders take the attitude of servant. Jeff Fung says they serve with humility. Stephen Mitchell says that they place themselves below the people. And J.H. McDonald says that you should speak to the people like you are their servant. And then Ron Hogan paraphrases this and says, don't talk down to them. Now that's the first one. In the next line, we have this second principle, which we're going to look at in a second, but let's skip to the line after that. So we'll go to the, the following line, which gives us the result of servant leadership. You can see there's kind of a parallel movement here. And so Fung and Mitchell both say that the people will not feel oppressed. And McDonald says that they will not feel burdened. And then Hogan says simply that they will feel safe. Now, if we go back a line again to this second principle, then the translations vary quite a bit more. Fung and Mitchell say that true leaders lead by following, or lead by following behind. McDonald says that you should put the interest of the people ahead of your own. And Ron Hogan says that leaders must first find out where the people want to go. I love that. Find out where they want to go before leading them. Now again, if we skip two lines, we see the result of this. And the reason I'm saying it this way is because there's kind of parallel language and imagery used between these two principles and their results. So Mitchell and McDonald say that no one will feel manipulated. Ron Hogan says they won't feel smothered. And interestingly, Jafu Feng says the people will not be harmed when he stands before them. And so there's a paradox here that's probably not obvious when I just gave you a laundry list full of translations. Uh, 
Obviously, true leaders do not stay behind the people all the time. And they aren't literally servants in the sense that they're taking orders from others and and fulfilling the true... I mean, yes, we talk about them being servants, but they're not literally servants in the, the most base sense of the word. They are leaders, and we have to recognize there is a role for a leader. And it goes without saying, though, that a leader does have to be directive and step to the front sometimes, if not many times. But when they integrate the attitudes that we describe in this chapter... The people will not resent it, and in fact, as I said a few minutes ago, they may not even recognize that it's happening. And that is what makes a servant leader. Now, I realize that this can sound like a recipe or a recommendation for manipulating people, but I don't think that's the case. It's not that people don't realize that they're being led in the sense of being manipulated. Uh, Here's where J.H. McDonald's translation kind of makes this the most clear, and Even though the leader seems to give up their position of power and seems to step to the back of the line, line, then here's what happens when it becomes clear that they're still leading, because it will become clear. McDonald says, The people will not feel burdened if, or we might say when, a wise person is in a position of power. The people will not feel like they are manipulated if or when a wise person is in front as their leader. And so the people will not feel burdened and they will not feel, uh, they will not feel manipulated when the wise person is in the front. Now he says they will not feel like they're being manipulated, which again could imply a very subtle or very successful form of manipulation where they don't even realize it. But really, I think people don't feel manipulated by a true servant leader because they aren't manipulated. The leader, as Hogan says, serves the best interests of the people and helps them all flourish. He leads them where they desire, truly desire to go. Now, I think Stefan Stenud has a really great analysis of this principle of leadership in his commentary. And if you listen to the show at all, you'll know I quote Stenud quite a lot. Uh, But this one is great. He talks about the art of leadership. He says, it is not to be obvious about it. That's the art of leadership. People are happy to obey someone who makes his or her orders into questions instead of exclamations. That one sentence could be a whole course, making your orders into questions instead of exclamations. He continues, it's not just an attitude like acting on a stage. It needs to be accompanied by certain principles of leadership, striving not to increase people's burdens, but to diminish them. Power includes the ability to treat others hurtfully. Power includes the ability to make decisions that oppose people's interests. The good leader should struggle hard to avoid such actions. The welfare of the people should always be the leader's primary concern. Following behind people, instead of being an obstruction in front of them, also means being sensitive to their needs. Merely hiding in the back of the line right after pointing the way is not enough. The good leader should always be sensitive to where people really want to go, what directions they favor, and which ones they want to avoid. That is following behind. So that's great, and there's so much more that could be said about that, but I do want to even... This is sort of just opening the door, I think, on this topic. 
Um, Marshall Davis, as always, takes this chapter, and this is helpful for us. He substitutes substitutes Christ for the wise person, and as always, it works very well, uh, which was exactly my point earlier in this episode. He says Christ is, and so I love that he kind of takes this this theological language and it helps read the Tao Te Ching in a new way, even as the Tao Te Ching helps us read Christ in a new way. He says, Christ is exalted above all, yet no one feels put down. Christ is Lord and King, yet his followers do not feel oppressed. The world rejoices to exalt him and never tires to sing his praise. Because he does not lord it over anyone, no one can complain that he is overbearing. So as I said, that was just kind of a taste of this massive topic of servant leadership, and I wish we had time to dive into that more. You could really do a whole podcast about servant leadership. Uh, But as we start to transition into the next section and see how that interacts with this one, we're going to look at another paradox here that lies right at the end of this chapter, although it's hidden in some translations, and then that's going to set us up perfectly to start looking at 68. So again, we're going to look at a paradox, maybe I wasn't clear there, a paradox from the end of 66, which will then lead us into 68. And so before we do that, I want to read 66 again in full from a different translation, which I actually think is my personal favorite. Uh, John Braun Jr.'s work here, he does take a few liberties, he paraphrases quite a bit, which is why I didn't use it at the beginning, but I think his final result is absolutely beautiful. It's a bit longer but I love it. Looking at the wide expanse of the great river valley, one can forget that it was shaped and nourished by the river that flows humbly through it. This is because the river, even as it exerts its influence, recedes, settling into the lowest position, following the contours of the valley it has carved. So it should be with leaders and followers. One who leads from the front is blind to the needs of those being led. A true leader leads from within the crowd, embracing the whole and moving along with it. A true leader is of the crowd, not above the crowd, and so is not resented. As the valley guides the river, the river shapes the valley. Leaders and people find their way, not by knowing the path, but by walking it together. So, as I said, we've got another paradox here, and the last two lines of this chapter have a huge variety of translations, and normally, many times, I sit down and I compare all of them and I go through a list like I just did, but this time I just want to focus on Jafu Feng's version, because first of all, it's fascinating, and then second of all, it reminds me of something else that I want to share before we move on. And his version, as I said, I think is the perfect way to set up the transition into chapter 68, where we'll talk more about sort of the confrontational side of leadership. And so the last two lines of Fung's version say, because he does not compete, he does not meet competition. Again, we have this paradox. The wise leader doesn't start from a position of aggression or competition or, as I said before, even a position of feeling defensive. He doesn't view life as a competition at all, but works towards the holistic health of those around him. 
She views people from a posture of presence, a posture of intercession, not just prayer, but interceding for them, truly desiring their best, not as not viewing people as threats to the self-esteem or their well-being or people as obstacles who need to be conquered. And so as we'll see in a minute, chapter 68 helps flesh out more of this idea of non-contention, but I want to stop and look at a chapter from uh, Damascene's Christ the Eternal Tao. Now, I use this book a lot in my Patreon-exclusive episodes, and I think I've occasionally brought it up on the regular show before. Um, In fact, I checked, and I actually used this exact same section from uh, Damascene's book back in episode 46, which is when I talked about the idea of giving evil nothing to oppose. So again, a similar concept here. Now, for those who don't know or don't remember, Christ the Eternal Tao is a scholarly book studying the theological resonances and historical resonances between ancient Taoism and Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, Eastern Christianity, but it has something very special in it, and I cannot truly praise this enough. Uh, Damascene writes his own sort of Christian Tao Te Ching is the closest way that I can describe it. He has 81 chapters, just like the original. And he organizes it in a series of nine enneads, or nine sets of nine chapters, with each one focused on a specific theological theme. And so he takes words from both Lao Tzu and uh, the prophets and Christ himself, and of course his own words, and writes this beautiful contemplative, um, theological, spiritually formative piece. I've said before that the book seemed to be out of print. It's actually now available again on Amazon. It's a little bit pricey, but it's definitely worth it. I don't think it's more than $30, so I would highly recommend checking it out. But in the sixth Ennead, which is called The Way of Humility and Forgiveness, Damascene has a tiny, really small chapter, but it's just power-packed, and it's on the issue of blame and forgiveness and contention. So let me go ahead and read the whole chapter now. He says... When one blames others, there is contention. When one finds one's own faults, there is peace. When one demands restitution for a crime, there is contention. When one forgives, there is peace. When the way took flesh, he took the blame on himself, and he forgave everyone, even his own murderers. Therefore did he come bringing peace. And yet, this non-contention is in contention with the contention of this world. Therefore did he come bringing his peace with a sword. Now, there's so much that could be said there, but the most fascinating line to me should be obvious. It's that second to last one. His non-contention is in contention with the contention of the world. It's a a tongue twister for sure. Now, but what does it mean? I mean, it's true. Christ was not afraid of confrontation. He got himself in a lot of trouble for confronting the oppressive religious elites, uh, multiple groups that he was confronting. And it's also true that the first definition of contention, if you look it up, uh, is heated disagreement. And so at first we could easily dismiss this line. There are clearly times where Christ was not only in disagreement, but even in heated or um, confrontational disagreement with people. But I think... I like to imagine that Christ is not fundamentally contentious. There is no contention at the core of his being, and he did not come with a default posture of contention or a default posture of rabble-rousing or or (laughs) hell-raising. 
but that's probably a poor choice of words. He didn't come with a default posture of uh, making problems or confronting just for the sake of confronting. He didn't confront people to boost his own ego, to defend his self-worth. He didn't confront people to advance his own goals. All of these confrontations were intended to shine light on the grace of God, and it's a grace that was in many ways being hidden from the eyes of the oppressed and the downtrodden people that he was primarily focused on ministering to. And this posture of non-contention was so foreign to the world that the very thing that he was contending with ended up being what is so often our own default posture, which is the posture of offense and defense, or tit for tat, or eye for eye, or my way or the highway, or dualistic thinking, black and white thinking that we are so immersed in, especially today. The thing that Christ was contending with was that contention that is at the heart of our culture and our mindset. We might call it the factory settings. The -the out-of-the-box functionality of our culture is contention. And this is what I believe Christ was contending with, or what he desires us to continue to contend with. Now, as I said, this sets us up perfectly for chapter 68. Uh, 66 focuses on how we interact with the people we lead through a posture of servant leadership and leading from behind. And then 68 focuses on how we confront the people or the problems that we do end up having to face. And this is, again, through a posture of non-contention. So let's go ahead and hear that chapter now before we start to unpack it. And it's quite a different feel and tone and, and flavor from the previous chapters. A good soldier is not violent. A good fighter is not angry. A good winner is not vengeful. A good employer is humble. This is known as the virtue of not striving. This is known as the ability to deal with people. This, since since ancient times, has been known as the ultimate unity with heaven. So you've got this list of examples here, but the controlling idea of the chapter is what Fung calls the virtue of not striving. I actually prefer Stephen Addis and Stanley Lombardo's translation of this line, which they call the te of not contending. Remember that te is Lao Tzu's word for virtue, from the Tao Te Jing, Tao Te Jing, Tao would be the way, Te is the virtue that comes from the way, it's the kind of virtue that flows from and learns from and emulates the Tao. They're intimately linked. And so Addison Lombardo call it the Te of not contending, Fung the virtue of not striving, and there are others as well. But the idea here is that the Tao doesn't strive, it doesn't contend, and neither should we. And Abbot George Burke has um, quite a lot to say on the subject, but this is a great section. He says, The um, fundamental idea of all these different translations is that those who do not force, do not struggle, do not contend with others or the elements of life, those are following the eternal pattern of divine heaven, which forces nothing but resolves all things through gradual evolution. Realizing that people must evolve for there to be lasting beneficial change, the wise person works for that alone and never resorts to the other means which, being in violation of the divine order and the nature of all things, cannot but fail and in the end work harm. 
before I jump on, I do want to say this Burke especially can have a very, um, without getting too deep into historical theology, can have sort of an early 20th century, uh, we might call it, um, uh, what? oh man, I'm totally blanking on the word, sort of a, well, let's just say an incredibly optimistic theology that, uh, that um, humanity will continue to evolve until it achieves perfection on its own. And I don't quite adhere to that, but there is a lot of what he says that can still be uh, applied without adopting all of his theology, which is fine because he's kind of an odd mix of Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, Taoist, everything. Um, and I don't know exactly where he lands on a lot, but I think his words there are are powerful in, in sort of a general sense. Um, now, moving into the examples that this chapter uses, great generals actually avoid bloodshed as much as possible. This is one of the ideas. They use reason, and they use honest diplomatic relations, and they refuse to oppress people. They refuse to subjugate people, but they work with people to move forward. At least that is Lao Tzu's vision that he had for his day, and he was writing to political and military leaders even more so than common people. But I, for one, I'm a pacifist, and as far as I know, I don't think that anybody in the audience is a military general. And so the question is, how can that apply to us today? And this is where I think Stephen Mitchell, as he does so often, does a really great job of interpreting these lines and sort of paraphrasing them for modern audiences and helping us think of ways to apply them. He writes, The best athlete wants his opponent at his best. The best businessman serves the communal good. The best leader follows the will of the people. And then he adds a section in the chapter that's heavy paraphrasing. I, honestly, I think it's just totally adding words, which Mitchell sometimes tends to do. But I think it helps clarify what this non-competition, what this non-contention looks like. It's very helpful. He says, all of these embody the virtue of non-competition. Not that they don't love to compete, but they do it in the spirit of play. In this, they are like children, and they are in harmony with the Tao. So what does it mean to compete in the spirit of play? I think if we look to Joseph Owl's translation, this clarifies the purpose of this quite a bit. And so maybe the first thing that when you heard that was maybe sports came to mind. And that's fine, but I'm thinking here about places where we would be tempted to compete in life, in the workplace or other places where we feel we have to be the better man or the better woman. But actually, I think sports can be a good metaphor here. For example, I really we was just talking about this today. I only like to I love playing sports, but I only like to play them for fun. Uh, this doesn't mean I don't try my absolute hardest. It doesn't mean I don't want to win. It doesn't mean I don't take them seriously. It doesn't mean I don't care at all if I play poorly, which I often do. But I can't stand playing with people who are so competitive, so confrontational, that their whole outlook is based on the score, whether they're winning or not, or even based on their own personal performance. Now, it's probably, especially where I live, the most common way to approach sports, but it is really, truly, tragically frustrating for me. I know it's an old cliche, but really this idea of it's just a game can be 100% true without meaning that the game isn't an important and valuable activity. And this is so important for me as I try to explain this to our kids especially. Saying it's just a game doesn't mean it's not important. 
I play for personal development. I play for building relationships, and I love the feeling of giving my best and, of course, just getting exercise. Um, As I said, my best isn't usually all that good, but I still love to give it. And I think that this outlook can apply to other life situations, too. What if instead of viewing competitive situations, whatever they are, as an opportunity to prove ourselves the better man or woman, to win the game, so to speak, Owl's translation sort of, sort of shows that maybe a better idea is to quote-unquote compete with the goal of mutual development, or what Mitchell calls competing in the spirit of play. Owl says, There is great power in not contending. Everyone has their own strengths. Help them to develop them. You will mirror the Tao of Heaven and embody the wisdom of the ancients. So whether it's in sports or the workplace, whether it's school or a contest or competition of any kind, think how much all of our lives could be improved if we saw these as opportunities not only for us to do our best, but to help others to develop their own strengths too as fellow human beings. Now, as I feel like I've been saying every week as we've been going through the second half of the Tao Te Ching, which is often called the Book of Te or the Book of uh, Virtue, tends to be more focused on the practical rather than the philosophical. I feel like I say this a lot. It's easier said than done. But Derek Lynn's commentary shows how valuable this could be in general. He writes that non-contention applies not only to military leadership, but also to social interactions. It is a powerful way to manage our personal relationships with other people. If we follow this virtue at the workplace, we will be at peace with our co-workers. We will not get angry with them or engage them in petty squabbles. This virtue leads not only to harmony, but also to success. The power, I think, of servant leadership and a non-contentious outlook on life when you put them together is very easy to underestimate. But really, it cannot be overestimated enough. And sadly, I know I sound like a broken record here, but it is easier said than done to put this put these pieces together. Uh, being perfectly honest, I have a couple places in my life right now where there is some serious contention and confrontation. And even though everything that I read and talk about here, all the words of Christ, everything that I am focused on point me in a very different direction, and I keep saying I know I need to work on my heart here, the fact remains that it is hard work. It is very difficult for me to work through this confrontation in a non-contending way. And it's easier to avoid the work in sort of a distorted version of Wu Wei, emphasizing the no action part. Just go with the flow, don't act, just allow it to happen, instead of the proactive way of dealing with problems, which we talked about last week, the path of least resistance that is actually taking that step forward. But I hope that we can continue to work on this together, and by that I mean especially I hope that I can get my act together and start to address these issues. So I want to end the episode by reading from one last translation, and there's really no specific reason that I'm inserting it here other than that really just I find it absolutely beautiful, and I want to share it with you. And it comes from a brand new version for me. It's something that I 
stumbled across and I had it written down in my notes as anonymous. So I went and Googled it and it's from a 19th century Scottish translator named James Legge or James Legge. I'm not sure on that. Uh, he has a very interesting story if you go read about him. It's L-E-G-G-E. But um, well-known translator of the Chinese classics and absolutely beautiful and this one in particular is not only powerful, but it's very poetic. I feel it's regal. It almost feels like something out of Tolkien. Uh, just something that is just beautifully written. And I think it's worth listening to it a couple times. It is not exactly accessible language. It does feel very Tolkien-esque in that sense also. But I really want to share it as I round things out here. And so I will just invite you to listen to that. And then I'll cut the episode short. I won't do a longer conclusion today. But as always, I do wish you grace and peace. And if you're interested in learning more or hearing more from me through exclusive episodes or early access episodes, you can always go check out the Patreon account. And there is a link to that in the show notes. I would encourage you to do that to help support me and the show. And um, of course, just to check out if any of those benefits there are interesting to you. So let's hear from James Leggy or James Legg, however you say his name, as we end things here. He who in great wars has skill assumes no martial port. He who fights with most goodwill to rage makes no resort. He who vanquishes yet still keeps from his foes apart. He whose hests men most fulfill yet humbly plies his art. Thus we say, he ne'er contends, and therein is his might. Thus we say, men's will he bends, that they with him unite. Thus we say, like heaven his ends, no sage of old more bright.